Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the show you all know and love, Imperialism and the Fringe. If you're new to the show, we discuss topics like American interventionism and imperialism around the world and niche hobbies, interests, or ideas that demonstrate human perfection and people's wizardry and skill in their own craft. I took a brief hiatus because I was substituting second grade at my middle school for a while. However, today I think I have quite the interesting topic for everyone. The United States is back at it again, applying the same formula internationally in order to enact regime change around the world. This time, they bring us to Costa Rica. This is a bit of a different scenario because it didn't involve as many deaths as that of Guatemala. However, I encourage you to remember that what the United States is doing here is still controlling a sovereign nation. So that brings me to my thesis for today's discussion. I think that the United States supported that of Mr. Jose Figueres Ferrer in the election of 1948 and the subsequent civil war that resulted. Despite their support of Figueres, I think that the United States was not happy with some of his left-leaning policies and still viewed him as a communist and someone who wanted to ally with the Soviets. This did not comply with their international plan and the system of both interventionism and isolationism that has plagued their foreign policy time and time again. A quick reminder that the United States has been involved in nearly 400 military interventions between 1776 and 2023, with half of them happening since 1950, and over 25% happened after the Cold War. Most of them have been in order to expand economic opportunity for that of the United States uh, to quote-unquote protect its citizens, um, to enact territorial expansion, regime change, and build new nations under what they see fit and policies that they see fit. This brings us to 1948. Calderon Gardia had served multiple terms and needed someone to step in for him and basically rule while he still pulled the strings. President Teodoro Picado was elected and was largely a puppet ruler for that of Calderon. Being Christian socialists, Picado and Calderon were largely trying to ally with communist ideals and more of the liberal reforms that the United States weren't enjoying at the time. Some of the reforms that Calderon enacted were actually quite helpful and left a pretty long legacy in this country. He had various social guarantees and social welfare programs that they called the Garantias Sociales. These initiatives actually improved the living conditions of the working class and it promoted social justice across the board there was more labor rights, social security, and some more health care reforms that the country needed. There was labor reforms. They improved working conditions. They protect the rights of workers. They established a minimum wage. They put limits on working hours. And they regulated uh, the workplace safety. In terms of health care, this is one of the biggest things I'd like to highlight. 
Um, he established the Social Insurance Institute, the Caja Costarricense de Seguro Social, or CCSS, in 1941. This institution actually gave universal health care coverage to Costa Ricans and was a huge role in improving public health throughout the whole country. They prioritized education for their people, too. They gave education to all Costa Ricans. This would be generally viewed as a good thing, in my opinion. The government invested heavily in the expansion of the whole sort of school system, and they made the quality improve drastically. For the farmers, this one's quite familiar from the last episode. He tried to redistribute land to small farmers and indigenous communities. Let's remember that one, because we know certain interests in these countries do not like their land being taken, even if they're not being used. They were trying to address land equality and promote agricultural development in Costa Rica. Things like the United Fruit Company had been plaguing its neighbors and had also a massive role in Costa Rica at the time. They were trying to get their own national product. They also built new roads, constructed a bunch of things, invested in public works, improved public transportation, and just tried to connect people across Costa Rica as a whole. Throughout history, though, his image has definitely been altered and tainted. There was a lot of political controversies as he left. Obviously, he had Picado take control and still wanted to be pulling the strings. Um, and a lot of the people that were more conservative in Costa Rica did not like him at all. Since I'm always a fan of providing the other point of view, um, a lot of people that didn't really agree with Guardia and the way that he was ruling were claiming that he was an authoritarian ruler. Um, obviously, you can see that with his actions with Picado and Teodoro. Um, he suppressed a lot of political dissent. Some of some journalists actually were restricted at times, and they even used the fugitive law a little bit liberally, so uh, they could just arbitrarily arrest people and political opponents as they saw fit in order to keep him in power. There was allegations of electoral fraud in 1940. He also had the Catholic Church against him. They <laughs> Here they are again. They got a bunch of criticism from the conservatives because they were trying to sort of separate church and state and limit the influence that the Catholic Church had in public affairs. Obviously, the church did not like this. On a more economic side of things, a lot of people think that Calderon Gardia's policies and social guarantees program were not able to be sustained over time and actually just led to way more fiscal deficits, inflation, and critics also accused the government of adopting socialist-leaning uh, economic policies that made entrepreneurship less feasible. There was also some instances of labor unrest during his presidency, and some of them claiming that even though he was making reforms, it wasn't enough to actually meet their needs. Everything he was doing led to just a very polarized time politically and the eventual civil war of 1948, which we're discussing today. On one side, you have the supporters of President Rafael Angel Calderón García, who wanted to stay loyal to their Costa Rican government. And then you have the opposition forces led by Otilio Ulate, who are trying to contest the election results. These tensions exploded into open warfare as rebel groups led by Figueres took up arms against the government. 
sparking what would become known as the Costa Rican Civil War. The fighting raged on for over a month. Battles erupted in cities like San Jose and all around the countryside. The United States, throwing their support behind Figueres, who had been sort of somewhat exiled and not around at the time, uh, he ends up emerging with a military force. What do you know? We've heard that one before. And offers a new beacon of change and hope for the country to, quote-unquote, free him and them from their socialist leader. Latte's forces and his sort of whole political party was upset because they had won the election, but not in Congress. So what does Calderon do? He has Congress annulled the election results, and that's what caused a massive uprising and all of this turmoil when things were already extremely tense and he'd already created a very polarized nation to begin with. The revolution lasted five weeks in which Jose Figueres, also known as Don Pepe, who I may refer to from now on, uh, actually ended up proving victorious. Most of the defense of the government was provided by the Communist Party members. However, their forces weren't big enough, and Teodoro Picado surrendered to Figueres in 1948. This affirmed democracy in the country instead of actually changing it, which is different than some other interventions that the United States has taken part in. A lot of people think that Figueres woke up one day and decided to topple the regime. However, this was not the case. It had been planned for some time, and the election of 1948 was just a perfect opportunity for Figueres to take control. Figueres had been calling for armed uprisings and actually arranged foreign arms to be airlifted to groups being trained by Guatemalan military advisors. <clears throat> I wonder where their arms came from. The elections in 1944 had a ton of charges of fraud against Calderon, like I sort of had said before. I should note, though, this wasn't just a few-week-long conflict. This was the bloodiest event in 20th century Costa Rican history. Over 2,000 people died. An important event worth noting is that on December 10th, 1948, the exiled Calderon Guardia and his supporters invaded Costa Rica again from Nicaragua. With the aid of the Organization of American States, basically the CIA and the United States, the overthrow attempt was quickly put down. Again, the United States is ensuring that someone who's promising to be more pro-American is in power and not someone who's proven time and time again to have socialist policies. I'm not saying that Calderon was unscathed. However, I don't think the United States should be meddling in the politics like this. So Figueres gets appointed to be the head of a provisional junta. He ruled the country for 18 months. The United States helped exile Calderon. So this was also a unique situation in which Figueres had almost some leverage over the United States. They weren't going to immediately try and upheave his seat in power because they just helped him get rid of his opponent. So he could have set up any sort of government he really wanted during this time. He could have taken sharp actions against socialists, like a lot of other leaders did in other countries, a pattern that you should take note of. He made good decisions for the most part, however, and it seems like he was pretending to be pro-U.S. while still allowing a lot of the same socialist reforms to occur 
behind the scenes. I think that Figueres knew how to play the United States, and he knew where the bread, which side the bread was buttered on. So he's a bit of an oxymoron, though. He made his own progressive social reform program, but at the same time, he banned the press and the Communist Party. So he's basically making socialist reforms while publicly banning the party as a whole. He also nationalized all the banks and the insurance companies, a pretty communist move. Out of 53 leaders, only three of them in Costa Rica have been military men, and six can be considered dictators. Most countries in Latin America are not this lucky. As a socialist, he used his popularity to build his own electoral base and founded the Partido de Liberación Nacional, which became the principal advocate of state-sponsored development. Don Pepe ended up dying in 1990 and was revered as a hero. Don Pepe was even awarded the 1987 Nobel Peace Prize for his attempts at establishing a peace treaty with the Civil War-torn neighbors around Latin America. One of the most striking effects of this whole revolution was the demilitarization of Costa Rica. It abolished the death penalty in 1878 and prohibited a standing armed force in 1949. The army commander-in-chief, in fact, gave his keys to the <laughs> headquarters over to the Minister of Education, who turned it into a museum. But the United States, of course, didn't like this, and during the Reagan era, they tried to remilitarize Costa Rica. Get that. It's probably one of the lowest points in U.S.-Costa Rican relations. Despite the fact that it seems the United States helped subvert Figueres as well. In a press document that I've attached to the episode, people within Costa Rica were writing extensively saying that Figueres wasn't enough for the United States and that they ensured his rule would be temporary and did their best to not let him turn it full communist again. I've attached another document uh, by the CIA that was released in the 70s, basically summarizing the situation in Costa Rica and how they viewed it. They really thought that any sort of establishment of hostile forces within the country would be in a position to interfere with the Panama Canal and Caribbean sea routes. So it was in extreme importance to, quote, U.S. security, Controlling canals in Costa Rica was important for U.S. national security. I guess that makes sense. That was a joke. That doesn't make any sense to me. Um, basically, they don't want the Soviets getting control of Panama. So they're also mentioning how the country was incapable of offering effective military resistance and how anti-military that they are with no Navy or Air Force. So I think that it's even more proof of the suggestion that they would take clandestine options in order to get the effects that they want without the Costa Rican public knowing. This seems to be an especially fragile situation. They did not see the communists as a very big threat, and they even say so in the document. I don't think that this would stop them, though, especially Mr. Alan Duels, someone I mentioned in the last episode. He seems to have had a vendetta against anybody who sort of spited the U.S. or didn't pursue their promises fully. 
well, a big thing to, to note about the economy of Costa Rica is that, again, our favorite, the United Fruit Company, the massive United States corporation with a vast complex of locally owned or controlled activities all around the country had their own system within the country again. They had their own docks, railways, hospitals, plantations, experimental farms, and rain-making airplanes. They produced almost 50% of the country's total exports. Can you imagine the amount of power they had within there? Land holdings in general throughout the country at the time were actually more diversified than Guatemala, though. I remember mentioning that the United Fruit Company owned acres and acres of land that they weren't even using. But in Costa Rica, a lot of smaller-time people actually did have an opportunity. They did quite well economically throughout the war. However, I still think that all of these actions ended up benefiting the United Fruit Company and the United States the most, ensuring a long-term ally. Whereas Calderon Gardia had different allies and plans. Costa Rican people were very concerned with the relationship the country had to the United Fruit Company. None of the politicians would ever really admit these things, but it's a very weighted factor in their politics and was throughout that whole time in history. It was larger than the government itself, if you do the math. Costa Ricans even believe that there's been occasions in matters of policy that the U.S. Department of State has subverted the decision to that of the United Fruit Company instead of the U.S. Ambassador in San Jose. They are very concerned with Figueres establishing an alliance with the Soviets at the time, though. At the end of the day, the United States did think that Costa Rica would side with them under the Rio Pact versus the Soviets. Remember when I mentioned the Caribbean Legion in the last episode about Jacobo Arbenz in Guatemala? There was an entire group of exiles and sort of these Caribbean revolutionaries were banding together to try and fight the authoritarian dictators that were continuously being installed in order to promote democracy and more socialist ideals throughout Central and Latin America. Figueres started training the Caribbean Legion in 1942 after he criticized the Calderon regime over a radio broadcast. He was preparing for war. However, whoever was in his ear whispering these things is unknown or providing whatever level of support. The United States officials were closely following the Caribbean Legion and they were extremely concerned about them, obviously. Figueres actually set out and did a bunch of terrorist attacks throughout Costa Rica in 1945 to 1946, hoping to get some sort of excitement out of the people, trying to get a strike going, and nobody responded. Calderon had to switch his sort of political disposition from that of the Catholic Church because of World War II, he was basically taking punitive measures against some of the rich and influential German communities in Costa Rica, so a lot of these elite withdrew their support for him. He had to change his whole demeanor and what he was running on, so he allied more closely with the popular vanguard party, who were the communists at the time. This definitely put a target on his back. There's a lot of paradoxes here. The forces that Figueres led were a bunch of anti-communist right-wingers 
um, and basically economically conservative uh, people who are very weary of the welfare state and a social democratic and telehista who sought to strengthen the new welfare state while ensuring democratic transparency. Its whole alliance quickly fell apart after the conflict and the Civil War. There was not much ideological consistency throughout this whole thing. The government forces were allied to the Costa Rican communists, had the support of right-wing Nicaraguan dictator Mr. Somoza, while Figueres rebels, who as anti-communists backed by the United States, received significant aid from the leftist Guatemalan president Juan José Arevalo. The United States had their way with Guatemala after that one. I'm also attaching a link for a document released by the Office of the Historian, uh, Foreign Relations of the United States, 1958 to 1960 in Cuba. It just shows that basically Mr. Alan Dules was all upset over Castro and these communist regimes taking shape. And he had full control over utilizing the Organization of American States um, in order to do what they want. He is even suggesting, you know, could, couldn't they do something about Castro or couldn't we make them do something about Castro? Figueres seemed eerily aware that the United States was not a fan of Castro and utilized rhetoric like calling him a Latin American demagogue and all of these sort of uh, monstrous names and the implementation of the policies uh, to keep that sort of pro-U.S. image in place publicly. Here's where things get a little fishy. There was a CIA historical review program that was released in 2003 saying that a former Costa Rican official published this in 1954, essentially stating that President Jose Figueres is a communist in his ideology and they think that Figueres was unquestionably involved in the 5th of April assassination against President Somoza, or the assassination attempt, my bad. Worth noting, especially here, is that this anonymous source thinks that the current Costa Rican political situation was the most potentially dangerous in Central America. So we have a narrative from the CIA saying that they weren't worried at all. However, there's a source here saying that it's the most dangerous. Do we think that they would not follow up on that lead? They viewed it as even more dangerous than Guatemala, since communist activities were way more concealed than that of Guatemala. They thought that Figueres and someone named Betancourt was conspiring to make a united Central American state, of which Figueres would be president. This sets off a ton of red flags for me. I don't know about you, um, because the United States would never let this happen. This anonymous source then concluded that President Somoza of Nicaragua was the only hope of assistance in overthrowing the Figueres regime. So it's interesting hearing them call it the Figueres machine regime, and even saying that someone like Somoza would have to help them. It's kind of a sobering thought. Again, that's someone who'll get their own episode at some point. But what you should know is that he is an authoritarian ruler, and a lot of his horses were well-known for their brutality and suppressing sort of op opposing political ideologies. 
So I'm going to try to explain what I'm looking at here as succinct as possible. However, both of the links will also be in the description of the episode. In an intelligence memorandum from Washington in December of 1971, they're discussing some of Figueroa's actions that I think proves that the United States would definitely take some steps to overthrow him or at least make sure he wasn't in the country for a long time. Contact with the USSR was established in 1944, but Figueres finally made these sort of promises happen in 1970. So he did have ties to the Soviets, and it was very easy for him to sort of rekindle this relationship and start negotiations again, or a era of negotiations, as Nixon once said in the post-Cold War era. They would have been able to sell vast amounts of coffee to the USSR, but it was met with serious opposition, just like it would have been in the 1940s when things were more concealed. There's an article written by Don Boning, a Herald Latin American editor, um, published by the Miami Herald, basically showing that there is a massive CIA plot rumored in Costa Rica to take down Figueres in one of his subsequent elections and terms. The United States clearly did not like what he did during that provisional junta government and took some steps to fight back. A fisherman on December 17th of that year reported sighting a mysterious ship which had unloaded long wooden boxes on a remote beach. The ship got identified as the Waltham, and the Costa Rican government later got info that the vessel was registered to the commercial section of the State Department which that apparently was not true. The closest ship they could find to this was the Waltham Victory, a 455-foot vessel owned by the U.S. Commerce Department and registered at the port of San Francisco. There's nothing at this point that suggests it was the same ship, though. They blamed the boxes on whiskey contraband. If the boxes did have weapons, we all know what that purpose was for. So the Costa Rican government calls for Nixon and his administration to recall Ted Williamson, their stationed CIA chief over there. They conveniently transferred Williamson to another destination and blamed it on the Iran-Contra affair. So when things got hot, they basically gave him a promotion and he started working actually right in the White House and in Washington. So there's a bit of speculation that I could definitely be doing here, but I definitely think that Figueres didn't align enough with the American ideology and what they wanted to preach and see fit. I think that they did anything they could in their power to prevent Figueres from having recurring terms in Costa Rica. However, he was a very smart man, and I think that... He continued to have power. He served a few terms. Costa Rica was eventually demilitarized. And he actually went down as a very beloved figure in their history. I think that he knew how to walk the line here and how to navigate the intricacies of Costa Rica's relationship with both the United States government and the United Fruit Company. I think this is a rare scenario where the United States didn't really get what they wanted. It did result in democracy and peace for the country. And yet, I do speak too soon. 
because Costa Rica has continuously been a friend and an ally to that of the United States. But clearly, we had opposing views when we did try to remilitarize them. So if you made it this far, I definitely want to thank you for listening to my show and for supporting me. I enjoy doing this, and I enjoy enjoy trying to actually disseminate this information in a way that's easily digestible. I also hope you learned something today. If you're listening to this and you are a plant nursery, you should totally sponsor the show. Who else should sponsor the show? If you are a ceramics studio... And you could make the pots for said plant nursery. So you should also sponsor the show and give me some love. You know what I'm saying? Every play does matter, and doing this would be something I would love to sustain over time. I'm proud to announce that I do have a podcast goal of reaching at least 22 episodes in this first season of things before I will take a brief hiatus and maybe consider making a video show as well. If you did enjoy listening to this, though, I do ask that you either download the show, give it a like, a follow on Apple Music or Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, leave it a five-star rating, and give me some Q&A or feedback if you have questions, a topic I should talk about, or if you even want to be on the show sometime. I'm trying to figure out what part of life I'm at. And I'd like to think I'm in the cool montage scene where the main protagonist is doing push-ups in the garage. And it's it's switching from that to, like, hitting a punching bag to running up, like, the steps in Philadelphia, like in, like in Rocky. And I've got, like, I'm, like, running with, like, a sweatshirt on. That whole, like, aesthetic, maybe, like, a trash bag over said sweatshirt. Like, silver linings, just, you know, really trying to sweat it out trying to just really grind it out trying to lock in a little bit you know what i'm saying um i'd like to think that that's sort of the chapter and then i'm about to just emerge from the garage ready for like a big bar fight i'm overlooking the ice on the lake right now it's officially frozen over and i think it's interesting how i coexist with this level of nature on a daily basis and when you have goals that might not matter or other things going on in life you don't learn to appreciate it but I've noticed so much about it and so much more about it since I've had to slow down during my injury the amount and array of birds that are around even during the winter is quite astounding and you even get a hint of the stars in the sky sometimes at night something that you don't get often down in Miami I love being out on the deck and noticing how many stars are up there. It's cool that they're consistently there, whether you notice them or not. They're just a wonderful thing. The fact that atoms collide and meet together and even make the fabric of what our reality is that surrounds us is a miracle and is an amazing thing. However, to be able to look up at burning balls of fire out in space is a gift. And most of the time, you can't see them. But that doesn't mean that they're not there. And I think that that's an important thing to remember, especially in life. Because just because you might not be seeing results or what you want right away, it doesn't mean that it's not occurring. Just because you didn't get that job or that opportunity didn't happen, 
doesn't mean that it's all over for you. You know, the next door is just opening. You may not be speaking to someone that doesn't mean that they're not thinking of you. You may pray to your God and you might not get an answer. That doesn't mean that things aren't happening in mysterious ways. So I'd like to take a moment to appreciate the subtleties of life and all the things that are happening around us that we may not notice but are still occurring. And I'd like to mention a Brazilian word that I just heard about. It is called saudada, I believe. It is essentially the longing and melancholy over things that have occurred in the past, appreciation for them, and also the deep yearning that comes with anticipating the events of the future and all that life has to offer moving forwards. If you took anything at all away from this episode, please spread the word, show me some love, give the show a good rating. I'm Tyler Gallant, and this is Imperialism in the Fringe. Have a good night.